Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 19. This is, again, Jesus, after he has come into Jerusalem, clears the temple, you know, we read that. He, there are some days here where he's continuing to teach in the temple. And so here, on one of those days, Luke 21, Luke 20, verse 1, one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, that's the Jewish leaders as a whole, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. Now just a quick aside, particularly from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 and other references. Israel is referred to as the vineyard of the Lord. So the moment that Jesus even says, a man planted a vineyard, the people who are listening to him could be thinking in their minds, or they would have this thought, oh, Israel, the vineyard. And then as he continues the parable, it becomes very clear he's speaking about the people, and he's speaking about what God has done. So he says, a man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. Again, similar to the parable that we have looked at before, an idea that there's this passage of time and then a return of that master, of that Lord, of that owner who has given the vineyard to tenants, to stewards. They don't own it. They're taking care of it. They're supposed to be doing what the master has said until he returns. Remember, that's what we were talking about last week too. So he rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He, st he sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests 
looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Now, just a quick couple of points about this. When it talks about the master saying, I will send my son. I've sent my servants to, you know, to bring the fruit of the vineyard or to speak to them and they have mistreated those servants. Now I'll send my son. Perhaps they will respect it. Clearly the parallel, the statement that Jesus is making is about himself and about the fact that he has come as the only begotten son of the almighty God, of the son of the heavenly father. And he has come to this world with the message of the good news, the gospel, right? But unlike this master in this servant, God's plan for Jesus to come into this earth was set in place even before the creation of the world. God had purposed that Jesus would come, that he would be the savior, that he would be the one that would come and lay down his life for us. And so Jesus is making these parables, but I all, as I always point out in these parables, you must understand the principle and the truth that's being stated rather than saying, oh, did God not know that Jesus would fulfill? That's not the point of that statement, right? And so he's coming to them and he's speaking to them in these of the Messiah that would come. And in, also in the parable, it says that the people say, let's kill the son so that the inheritance will be ours. And you can think of that in just in very natural terms, you know, in the, in the natural, maybe they, maybe they were assuming that the father has died and that's why the son is coming. And if, he, if they kill him, they'll get the inheritance, whatever it may be. But if you think about it in terms of spiritual terms and in terms of what the world will say, what is it that really is at the heart of that statement? Let us kill God so that we can be God. We can be our own gods. It, from the beginning, this is really what the heart of man has been. And when you think about the Tower of Babel or you go through all the other incidents in the Old Testament and you come into the New Testament and you see the effect or the things that have happened even now and we get to our present time, people are always saying, there is no God, we are God. That's what Jesus is saying. You know, these people are saying, let's kill the son and the inheritance will be ours. What inheritance? The identity, the authority, the resources, it'll be ours. We will be God. And Jesus is speaking about these things when he says these statements. And the Jewish leaders understood it completely. They knew. They knew he's talking about this and what he means by this. And he's saying that he's the Messiah. And they knew that he's talking about them as the ones that are about to kill him. That he knows what's going on in their hearts. Right? Now, in this passage, as you look at this, it's clear that the Jewish leaders have this and, and, the, and Jesus knows about it, but they don't do it. They don't take an action. Why? Because even as we read in the end of Luke chapter 19, every day he was teaching in the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. And here in chapter 20, we are reading that even when they're questioning his authority or they're trying to find fault with him, they're trying to sort of trap him, they're afraid to say something because of the people. 
And then at the end of the chapter, we read there that they were looking for ways to arrest him, to get him out of the picture, but they were afraid of the people. It's, isn't it noticeably ironic that the Jewish leaders who should have been looking to please God are instead focused on pleasing people. The Jewish leaders who should have been more interested in walking in the fear of the Lord are in fear of people. So the fact is that these leaders had really not fulfilled what God had called them to. Because they were not leading the people to God and in the fear of the Lord. They were leading people to be focused on each other, on one another, and to be led by what, was, what they were seeing in their immediate circumstances. And so, it is indicative of the spiritual condition of these leaders that the truth was not as important for them. They were not trying to find out whether what Jesus was saying was true. They were trying to hold on to their power. They were trying to hold on to their position. And they were more interested in the political ramifications than in the truth being manifest. So what, what happens as a result? They're coming to Jesus and they're questioning him about their authority. But guess what? They're not exercising their own authority. They're not doing what God has called them to do. They were in positions and, and, and in, in, in that responsibility, they were accountable to be able to lead people to Christ, to lead people to God. Instead, they have really not used that authority or that position in the right way. And so they don't receive. So Jesus essentially says, you haven't answered that question for yourselves. What authority do you have and what authority are you exercising? And therefore, I'm not even going to answer your question. But in what he does to them, he doesn't just avoid the question. He says, by what authority did John the Baptist do what he did? And so here's the thing. By doing that, Jesus actually reveals something very important. Jesus is saying he has all authority. You know why? Because John the Baptist very clearly said, this is the Messiah. This is the one who was to come. This is the one about whom I was telling you that I'm not even worthy to untie, you know, to tie the sandals on his feet. I'm not even, I'm just declaring that the Messiah is coming. I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. I'm just telling you that the one who comes after me will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. I, I'm baptizing you in water just to get you ready. And John the Baptist was clearly pointing to Jesus. He tells his own disciples, yep, you know, he, he, he's the one. He's, so John the Baptist, in all that he had been doing, there was, not, there was no compromise on John's part. From all of his ministry, the description, and even to the very end, it's very clear he was pointing to Jesus. So when Jesus asked these Jewish leaders, by what authority did John do what he did? Now they're in a bind. Because if they say he did it by God's authority, then Jesus can say, and what did John say about me? Right? 
Because if you are saying this is a prophet of God, this is an authority of God that he's speaking with, then what did he say about Jesus? He said Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that is to come. Jesus is everything. But if you say he's not of God, then it's very clear that you are living according to the dictates or the whims of the people and not according to truth. So Jesus is confronting them very, very cleverly. He's confronting them and he's saying to them, look, I am forcing you to take a position on John. And in doing that, I'm forcing you to take a position on me. I'm confronting you to tell, to, 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 to declare who, who do you really think Jesus is? So what did the Jewish leaders do? They said, oh, we, we, we don't have an answer. We can't answer it. Which is also an answer. So Jesus, the Messiah, fully God, fully man, has all authority. And through his ministry that's now culminating in Jerusalem, now culminating in these last stages, last days, he has already demonstrated his authority over nature, as we were saying. He has, uh, he has already demonstrated his authority over the scriptures because he interprets the scriptures and explains the scriptures even better than the teachers and the, and the scribes and the others who were meant to know the scriptures. Jesus explains them. He demonstrates his authority over them. He demonstrates his authority to heal. He demonstrates his authority to forgive sin. He demonstrates authority to drive out demons. He demonstrated his authority to drive out those profiting in the temple. He demonstrated authority to rebuke the hypocritical leaders. He declares and he demonstrates the authority to speak about the kingdom of God and to say the kingdom of God is now here. And he is just about to demonstrate his authority by willingly laying down his life. He says, no one takes this from me. No one is taking my life from me. I lay it down. I exercise authority in this. And so Jesus is saying all of this when he's asking this question. And he's talking about, he's alluding to the fact that he's laying down his life in this parable. Because that's what he's saying. He's very explicitly making that connection. But even though the leaders knew immediately that he was speaking about them, and what they were planning to do is known to him, they did not repent. I mean, you would think that as Jesus is doing these things, as these things are happening, that somewhere, somehow, they would say, you know, we're wrong. We've made a mistake. But you know, when you go down a certain path and you have a certain position and you have a certain power, it's very difficult to give it up. Very difficult to say, I'm wrong. I was wrong. We were wrong. I had a friend in high school. We were witnessing, we were talking about Jesus and he argued with us for weeks, months, whatever else. And at the end of the whole thing, you know, that whole time period, he said to us, I 
know that what you're saying is true. But if I publicly say that what you're saying is true, then I'm saying that I was wrong. And I don't want to do that. He said, I don't want to say that I was wrong. So I will not say that you were right. That's what the leaders are saying. Right? They're saying, I, we, we just won't do it. We won't say that what you're, what you're doing is right. Because that means I was wrong. And they don't say anything. And Jesus, when he's alluding to his own death, really what he's speaking about is the fact that he had come to his own, but his own did not receive him. I want to go to a passage of scripture in John chapter 1. It is a familiar passage of scripture, but in light of what I've just said, and the light of this parable that we've just read in Luke, I want you to listen to these words. You can follow along, read in the Bible. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Listen to these words in the context of what we've talked about and in the statement that is made about John the Baptist and the ministry and everything else. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The tenant farmers, they attacked three of the owner's servants, getting worse each time, and finally they killed the owner's son. His own did not receive him. Jesus' word of warning to those who reject him is that ultimately they will be judged by the owner. 
the one that they have rebelled against, the one that they have rejected, the one that they have said, oh, we want what his, is his, we want that for ourselves. Ultimately, they will be judged. And in fact, Jesus says they will be crushed. In fact, and the word, word that is used there is they'll be powdered. They'll be scattered like dust. And that the stone that they have rejected will crush them. That's how Jesus speaks about it. But we have the same situation before us today. How do we respond to the servants of the Lord? To those that come to us with words of warning. Those who tell us that this is what the word is saying. Those who show us that this is what we must do to live. Or how we must live. How do we receive them? Do we beat them up, criticize, mock, ridicule, push away, and say, no, not for me? Or do we go even further and reject Jesus? And we say, no, I, 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 I get it. I understand this, what you're saying, but it conflicts with what I want, with my desires, with the fact that I want to spend my wealth or my resources what I think of as mine. And so in verse uh, 17 and 18, Jesus speaks about this response that these servants have. And he says to them, you know, in verses 17 and 18, he presents an option or he talks about how they respond. And at first reading, it seems a little strange because he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it, the stone, falls will be crushed. And so in other words, Jesus is saying, we need to fall on the stone instead of it falling on us. We need to fall on the stone instead of it falling on us. But you know the statement that he makes? The, the, the stone that you have rejected has become the chief cornerstone? He's actually quoting from Psalm 118. And the moment he says this to the people that are listening who are familiar with the Psalms, who would recite the Psalms, who would in synagogue be reading these Psalms, who knew them by memory. They didn't have iPads. They didn't have, you know, devices they could walk around with and refer to so that they, you know, if somebody said Psalm 118, they went, I, I don't know. Let me look it up. You know, they knew it. So when Jesus says the stone the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone, they knew what he was talking about. Because when you go to Psalm 118 and you stop reading Psalm 118, and the psalmist says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. Let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his love endures forever. When hard pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. The Lord is with me. He's my helper. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarmed around me. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. 
Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. And then he continues and he says, this is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. When Jesus quotes this, the hearers know that he's talking about salvation. He's saying all those things that the that the psalmist was reminding you of, was telling you about, was telling you that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and from the house of the Lord, we bless the Lord, we call upon the Lord, we say, oh God, let your love endure, we thank you, we praise you. Guess what? I'm right here. I'm standing in front of you. I've become the chief cornerstone. I'm the one on which that whole structure depends. I'm the one that gives the meaning and life and all that is necessary for you for salvation. I'm the one. So Jesus, after quoting that one verse from Psalm 118 verse 22, which would have led his hearers to understand he's talking about salvation, then he expands on it. And he expands on the purpose of this cornerstone. And typically you wouldn't think of a cornerstone sitting out by itself on which something falls or it falls. But he's mixing metaphors. He's using all these things and the images. So he's gone from the owner and the tenants and the vineyard to suddenly talk about the capstone or the cornerstone. But the point that he's making is this. You have rejected both. You have rejected the sun. You have rejected this stone. You have said, oh, it's not, you know, we will do our own thing. You have said all these things. But let me tell you, that, and he goes a step further and says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and anyone on whom that stone falls will be crushed. So what's the difference? What's the difference between falling onto the stone and stone falling on you? Seems like a similar outcome, right? Both cases. Both cases, you seem to be in pretty bad shape. And in the natural, uh, yeah, you know, you could say, hey, if I fell on a stone or if the stone fell on me, probably similar outcome. But you have to look at the word of God and understand that this word that is used here to be broken is a word that is implying or stating how we would come to the Lord broken of ourselves, broken of our own pride, broken of our self-righteousness, broken of our self-sufficiency. And we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I come to you. Because here's where this phrase is most easily visible and understood in Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, it is where David, who has sinned, with Bathsheba, committed adultery, committed murder, is now confronted with his sin. Prophet Nathan comes to him, that servant of the Lord that is coming and saying, you are the one that has done this wrong thing. You are the one that has sinned against God. And David recognizes that he has sinned. 
And he calls out to the Lord and he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite, repentant heart. You, God, will not despise. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. Oh, I come and I fall on the rock. I fall on the stone. I recognize what I have done. And I cry out for mercy. I know my transgressions, my sin. It's before me. I see what I have done. And I have had, I've committed bloodshed. But oh God, forgive me. Oh God, cleanse me. Oh God, wash me. I come and I fall on the rock. Oh, and I'm broken. I am broken and contrite. Oh Lord, you will delight. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous burnt offerings offered whole. We are broken when we come to the Lord in repentance. We fall on the cornerstone, on that living stone, on Jesus himself. And we say, oh God, break us, break us. There's a big difference in what the Bible is saying between falling on the stone or the stone falling on you. When the stone falls on you, it is judgment. There's nothing else. You're crushed, powdered, scattered. But when you fall on the stone, you're saying, God, I, 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 I get it. I, 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 I have sinned. And I'm coming to you. This morning, I want to take a few minutes and even as we really consider our response to this but I want to take a few minutes and to speak to you and to say Lord and, and to challenge you where do you stand with regard to Jesus 
Where do you stand with regard to what he has said? Where do you stand with all these things that we're reading about in this parable, in this story that Jesus shares? How is it that you are responding to the good news and the gospel that Jesus declares? There is no mistaking it. The people at the time had no confusion that Jesus was declaring that he is the Messiah, he is God, he is the one who has authority, he is the one who is God and has the authority of God in that sense as he's demonstrating, and he is the one in whom they must believe. They had, they, there was no confusion. They knew that that's what he was saying. And that's why they want to get rid of him. Because they do not want to give up what they had. How many of us today, if you've never heard Jesus or the name of Jesus or about Jesus, and this is the first time you're hearing about him, or maybe the second time, maybe the first time that you're paying attention, I challenge you that you would say, Jesus, how do I respond to you? Your message was clear to the people then, and it's clear to us today. You are God. You are Messiah. You are asking us to receive you and to believe you and to accept you. How do I respond? And, Lord, if I do not receive, I also see very clearly that there is a consequence. That there is an end result. There is an outcome of the stone falling on me. And Lord, I do not want that. I don't want to be crushed. I want to be broken. So our response to the Lord is just that. Every week, I want to emphasize these responses and these applications. It's not just sufficient for us to hear the word of God. We have to respond. We have to say, okay, based on this, I, I respond back to God in this way may not even be a specific action or an application, but at least there's a response of the heart, a commitment of the heart, an orientation of our mind and of our life. And we are saying, Lord, we respond by being broken but not crushed. We respond by being broken but not crushed. We understand the difference and we want to come to you and to ask you to break us. In all these ways, just like David did when he cries out to the Lord and comes before the Lord with a broken and contrite heart. Similarly, we come to the Lord regularly. Regularly. And we say, Lord, I come to you. Broken, but not crushed. And you know, when we do that, the point of application, the way in which we have to respond to how the Lord would lead us and guide us, is that we have to say, Lord, Lord, we apply this by letting you break away or remove from me or break out all the stuff that needs to be removed. We have to yield to the Holy Spirit. We have to yield to the work of God. We have to say, Lord, I need you to work. The Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, they knew that they were opposing Jesus. But whatever in them was convicting them, whatever in them was prompting them to understand that they needed to respond to this good news and the gospel message, but instead caused them to walk away, either because of their position or their power or their wealth or their, their 
the, the things of the accolades of people and men, whatever the reason, whatever was keeping them from receiving Jesus and caused them to walk away from him, to oppose him, to reject him, that was the, the, the turning point for them. That was what was resulting in their ultimate destruction. We have to say, Lord, I don't just recognize that these things are there. I need them out. I need them to be removed. And so what I would challenge you, as I do, you know, as I mentioned this every week, pray. Ask the Lord. Talk to the Holy Spirit. Because what is necessary to be broken in your life is not what's necessary to be broken in your spouse's life or your child's life or your brother's life or your friend's life. It's not one size fits all. Right? We don't come to the Lord and say, I've repented of my sin of pride. But look at this person. They're still so proud. No. We say, God, you break me. You take this stuff out of me. I want to fall on the rock. And I pray for my brother and my sister that they will do the same. But that's on them. They have to fall on the rock. You can't go push them on the rock. You don't do anything of the kind. You just pray. You trust the Lord. But this point of application for you this week is for you. All these things that we're talking about. When I talked earlier about the fact that now Jesus' ministry is culminating. We've been in the book of Luke for many weeks now. 38, this is the 38th week. Well, we are going through 20 chapters in a one small book of the Bible. You know? What does this do for us? After all these weeks and going through this, is it making a difference? And I challenge you that you would go to the Lord and say, Lord, break me. Break off from me all that needs to be broken off. Remove from me all that needs to be purged. Cleanse me. Make me white as snow. Wash me. When we do that, when we do that, I believe that Jesus is faithful. He is responsive. He is eager to answer that cry. So we're going to take a few minutes to pray. We have a few minutes this morning. Many times on Sunday mornings, we simply hear the word and we go we are, as often as we can. I do want to take some time that right here, right now, you would just take some time to pray. And you would just ask the Lord, Lord, how do I respond to your word? How do I allow this word to change me, to transform me? How do I fall on the stone? Let's pray. Hallelujah. Go to the Lord yourself. Talk to him. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you. You could be here, sitting in the sanctuary. You could be online. You may be listening to this message later. Doesn't matter. Just go to the Lord now. Ask him. Lord, how do I receive you? How do I get broken but not crushed? Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. 
pray and call out to the Lord. Ask him to reveal. Don't think about somebody else. Don't say, yeah, this was really necessary for that other person. Just ask the Lord for yourself. Lord, help me. Touch me. Break me. Thank you, Jesus. As I mentioned before, if you've never turned to the Lord and asked him to be Lord of your life, accepted him as the Messiah, recognize that all these prophecies and all these stories and all these statements that were being made for centuries before were pointing to Jesus and John the Baptist was culminating all of that prophetic word the last of those prophets to say, Jesus, here he is. This is the one. If you've never received him, if you've never accepted him, I pray that this morning, this right now, that you would receive Jesus as your savior, that you would accept him, that you would say, Jesus, I believe you. And the Bible doesn't give any complicated process. Just says, when you receive, when you believe, when you accept, he is faithful to come be in you, to be your Lord, to be your Savior. So receive the Lord Jesus. Accept him. Confess with your mouth. Declare that the Lord is your Lord. And as you do, the Lord will show you what needs to be broken, what needs to be removed, what needs to be dealt with. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. For those of you who have accepted the Lord a long time ago, it's very easy in the Christian walk to become self-righteous, to think that you're doing such a good job that you deserve the blessings of God, the goodness of God, the presence of God. But what Jesus is warning us against what he's speaking to those Jewish leaders and to all of us. It's not about our good works. It's not about our good intentions. It's not about how good we are or what position we're in, what power we have, what authority we exercise. No, it's about Jesus. That we would come to him and him only. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we can receive it and it changes us. And I pray, Father, that we would truly come to you as the chief cornerstone. That, Lord, the fact that you are that massive, that powerful, that cornerstone will never be intimidating to us. It would not be fearful to us. It would not be a situation where we are afraid but rather in the fear of the Lord, in the awe and understanding, in the respect, in the understanding and comprehension of your word, we would say, oh God, we fall upon you. 
we come to you. We give you our hearts. We give you our will. We give you our selfishness, our ambitions, our stubbornness. Everything, we just give it to you. We say, break it off, Lord. Break it off. Cleanse us. Cleanse us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that as we were reminded in the beginning and we come back to now, even as David calls out in the Psalms, in this Psalm 51, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice because we believe and we understand, Lord, that you, you don't leave us in our broken state. You repair, you restore, you replace, you do everything that is necessary to make us new. Oh God, we thank you for that. And so this morning, we thank you, Lord, for new life in Christ Jesus. We pray this together in Jesus' name.